Everyone knows the word, mutiny. We can't talk about life on the high seas without diving into the stories about sailors rebelling against their captains or the reasons behind those insurrections. And our intro today starts with one of the British Navy's most infamous captains and how the mutiny all began, a tropical fruit related to the fig. That would be breadfruit, discovered in 1769. It was a cheap and nutritional food source. It grew well in tropical areas, and plantation owners in the Caribbean used the fruit to supplement enslaved workers' diets. Fast forward to 1787, when the British Crown sent the HMS Bounty to Tahiti to harvest saplings for transport to the West Indies. The journey wouldn't be difficult or long, requiring a crew of just 46, including two botanists. On this trip, Captain William Bly decided to take Fletcher Christian, the son of a family friend, and teach him how to be a good sailor. Captain and crew departed England on December 23rd and looked forward to an easy trip. Three months into the journey, though, the weather forced them to take a longer route. Tempers flared and tensions ran high, but not because of the detour. You see, the crew despised their captain. Bly seemed to find fault in everything they did, often in the most condescending ways. He took delight in humiliating his men, the officers in particular. By the time they reached Tahiti in October of 1787, the men were overjoyed to leave the ship. It would be five months before the rainy season ended, delaying their journey to the West Indies. While they indulged in relationships with the female population, Captain Bly worked on trading with the indigenous people, picked out breadfruit saplings, and made extensive lists complaining about his men. So when the crew set sail for the West Indies on April 5th of 1789, the tension between captain and crew hovered as thick and dark as any storm cloud. Bly took the shouting insults at everyone, even young Fletcher Christian. Something had to give. That time came when Bly accused Christian of stealing coconuts simply because the pile appeared smaller than he recalled. Christian denied the theft, and Bly promptly punished the entire crew. And while it's not clear what instance of Bly's abuse led to the mutiny, his journal states that Christian and a few other men entered his cabin early on April 28th. They tied his hands and set him and a few men adrift in a boat loaded with provisions. Bly eventually reached a Dutch settlement and informed the British Navy of the mutiny. He wrote to his wife, telling her that he was innocent of all wrongdoing and that he had acted with valor. Eleven months later, Bly returned to England, where locals hailed him as a hero. Christian and the others didn't fare so well. Eighteen years later, in 1808, a search team discovered one of Bly's old crew members in a small community on Pitcairn Island. As the lone survivor of Bly's crew, he explained his fellow crewman's fate. Without a chain of command, everything had fallen apart. Mutiny had led to anarchy, and eventually, to death. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Pirates. We've probably all heard the expression before, to run a tight ship. Roughly, it means keeping an organization or company well-organized or controlled. And although Bly ran a well-disciplined ship, he might have been a little too tight. Contrary to the belief at the time that pirates were lawless, they did have rules. Those who have seen the Pirates of the Caribbean films will recall the Pirate Code. The code, as the movie refers to it, was a book containing laws for pirates by pirates that they must all adhere to. Well, mostly. The consequence for breaking the code was death. 
unless it was interpreted as a guideline. In real life, lawlessness and chaos in a pirate's line of work would surely get them killed, either by their own crew, their targets, or by a sudden drop and stop at the end of a rope. While no single book existed, pirate captains and communities did have written rules that every new member read before joining. Now, aside from the rules governing members' right to vote, the ratio of pay and equality, there were other laws too. Job duties were often spelled out, hierarchies were explained, and a form of a judicial system was put in place. Captains didn't create these rules solely from the goodness of their buccaneer hearts, though. Pirating was a business, and operations had to run smoothly, lest the consequences be death. No guidelines about it. And while pirate rules seem much more reasonable and afforded sailors better pay than those aboard navy and merchant ships, they were practical, too. Given the working conditions for the government or working aboard a pirate ship, captains understood the value of creating loyalty among the crew. Naval captains like Bly often ruled with an iron fist. With such poor treatment and pay, merchant ships had to create horrific punishments to prevent theft among the already disillusioned crew. Those impressed or forced into service aboard British naval ships weren't paid at all. It was a horrible, horrible life. All that neglect and abuse aboard legitimate ships only encouraged solidarity among those on pirate vessels. Their code adapted over the years, starting from laws that were cherry-picked from those on land and altered to best fit life at sea. Roles aboard pirate ships were clearly defined. Due to the danger of the job, experience mattered over race or status when placing a crew member. However, the crew voted captains and other high-ranking officers into position, and they could vote them out as well. Every crew member, regardless of nationality, had equal suffrage. While higher ranks meant a larger share of the plunder, the officers earned that extra by effectively leading the crew and managing the risks. The amounts and benefits varied from ship to ship. For some, the captain and officers received extra portions, while others thought equal portions kept egos in check. And speaking of officers, of all the kinds on board, the captain and crew trusted the quartermaster the most. The crew elected someone who would do the job best at balancing out the captain's power, ensuring that every member of the crew received fair treatment and enforced the ship's rules. Every action the captain took had to pass through the quartermaster first. The role also entailed selecting new crew members, dividing the booty, and dispersing food and drink. The quartermaster's motto could easily have been, equal pay for equal prey. Many who held the position, like Calico Jack Rackham, went on to become captains. With the rules or codes, infighting was severely curtailed. Crew members who didn't adhere to the rules or stole or hid bounty found themselves marooned, or worse. Pirating was dangerous work, sometimes resulting in death or dismemberment. To encourage the crew to embark on raids, captains made provisions for those who became injured. Many offered disability pay or allowed the men to stay on board the ship for as long as they liked and still gave them a part of the booty. Pirate Jeremiah Huggins received gold pistols, gold dust, silver, and other treasure after he became injured. John Fenn, who lost an arm, became a captain. And perhaps most famously, Blackbeard delayed taking a pardon, opting for one last raid on ships in Charleston Harbor. He didn't do it out of greed, though. He risked everything to get his sick crew medicine. It's a unique perspective on the legendary pirate. In the end, it was his devotion to his crew that set in motion the events that led to his own death. 
Blackbeard wasn't alone. Although Edward Teach's selfless act seems more widely known, we would be remiss if we left out the story of Sam Bellamy, otherwise known as Black Sam, and the loyalty he inspired in his crew. Tall, dark-haired, and charismatic, Bellamy became one of the most well-known pirates of his day. Although his looks won over the love of his life and his charm and expertise made him popular with his crew, it was his own unjust treatment that turned the small-town boy into a well-loved pirate captain. Sam Bellamy was born in England on March 18th of 1689. One of five children, he became the only son to survive to adulthood, making him the sole heir to his father's estate. At the time, only the eldest son of a male landowner could inherit the family wealth. The family estate wasn't much, just a parcel of farmland in a town consisting of a few cottages. The Bellamy family struggled to survive planting crops of potatoes. But over time, English lords drove off the peasants who had lived on the land for generations, taking the property for themselves. Bellamy soon found work on a naval ship in 1702. The promise of a warm bed and free food sounded far better than poverty and starvation. What he found, though, at the tender age of 13, was hard labor and beatings. After four years and surviving the War of Spanish Secession, 17-year-old Bellamy made a break from the Navy. He set out for the New World, hoping to make a better life for himself. He settled in Cape Cod, finding two things, work as a sailor and Mary Hallett. On a spring night in 1715, he met the 16-year-old at a local taproom and fell in love at first sight. He charmed her with his adventures at sea, and Mary, impressed with his looks and story, was equally infatuated. While his fellow sailors were more of a love em and leave em type, Bellamy doted on Mary, becoming more smitten with her as their relationship continued. The two soon began talking about marriage and their life together. Her wealthy parents were less than thrilled with the prospect of a penniless sailor for a son-in-law and quickly forbade Mary from seeing him again. Angry and humiliated, Bellamy left Cape Cod, promising Mary that he would return for her once he made his fortune. Soon after, he connected with a silversmith by the name of Paul's Grave Williams. He was the son of an influential Rhode Island family. The Williams ran an unregulated business and needed an experienced sailor. The pair planned on using a family-owned ship to smuggle goods from the West Indies. Of course, that was before a better opportunity presented itself. On July 13th of 1715, a Spanish treasure ship set sail from Havana, flanked by ten other vessels. Six days into the trip, the ships found themselves in the midst of a fatal hurricane. The next day, their treasures of gold, silver, jewels, and other valuables glittered in the relatively shallow water, among the many corpses. Ships descended on the area like vultures. Williams and Bellamy arrived in January of 1716, but they were too late. Pirate Henry Jennings had managed to run off with a hefty amount of the treasure, leaving the pair to scrounge for the leftovers, along with hordes of other treasure seekers. What Bellamy wasn't aware of was that back home, Mary had given birth to their stillborn child, alone in her parents' barn. Neighbors heard her screams, and upon discovering the deceased child, accused her of murder. Mary was publicly whipped for her loose morals, they said. Afterward, she roamed the cliffs along the coastline, waiting for Bellamy's return. She would be waiting for some time, though. Having yet to fulfill his promise, Bellamy was still at sea, seeking his fortune. He and Williams headed to South America that March. They worked with a handful of pirates, but not from a mighty ship. They operated from a pair of small sailing canoes. Still, they successfully looted and stole a Dutch vessel. After recruiting a larger crew for the ship, they seized an English vessel, 
And when they returned to Cuba, they came across Jennings and a French ship ripe for the picking. Late that night, Jennings watched in total amazement. The smaller pirate fleet beat them to the target. Bellamy's men, all naked and howling like madmen and waving cutlasses and brandishing pistols, boarded and attacked the ship. To Jennings' astonishment, the French captain surrendered without a single shot fired. Outnumbered, all Bellamy and Williams could do was wait while Jennings' crew divided the booty. One of the men called out, pointing to an approaching ship flying a pirate flag. Jennings recognized the ten-gun sloop as one belonging to Benjamin Hornigold. To say that Jennings and Hornigold were enemies would be an understatement. Bellamy couldn't help but wonder what this meant for his share of the bounty. Once Jennings and a small crew left to intercept Hornigold, Bellamy and his crew ransacked the French ship and rode off in canoes loaded with pieces of eight. By the time Jennings returned, Bellamy, Williams, and the treasure were long gone. The pair didn't get far before running into Hornigold, though. However, instead of relieving them of their treasure, Hornigold welcomed the brash young pirate who had fleeced his enemy. He even made Bellamy captain of the Marianne, a recently acquired ship. Later, during a hunt off the western edge of Cuba, Hornigold Bellamy and another pirate ally named Olivier Labousse spotted an English merchant ship. Being the eternal patriot, Hornigold refused to attack, although Bellamy and Labousse had no such reservations. The crew under Hornigold's command voted, this time in favor of the raid. The attack was successful, and the trio moved on to an even more prosperous ship, carrying cocoa. Hornigold left for Nassau in May of 1716. Meanwhile, Williams, Bellamy, and Labousse set sail for Hispaniola in the hopes of securing cannons. They raided English ships, which didn't go over well with Hornigold upon their return. Tensions among the three men and their crew continued to rise. When Hornigold refused to attack on another English ship, his crew voted to relieve him of his command and replaced him with Bellamy. A crew member sewed their new flag, the infamous skull and crossbones we know as the Jolly Roger. Bellamy allegedly told his men the flag represented resurrection, not death. They were free men who raided any ship regardless of nationality, but especially those who had treated them poorly. Labousse and Bellamy left Hornigold and decided they should move on. The crew agreed, and by November 9th, the pirates captured an English passenger sloop traveling to Antigua. Bellamy and Labousse took the sloop to an island and used it to make repairs to their own ships. Bellamy made sure that none of the ship's crew or the exceptionally wealthy passengers were hurt, except for one man who tried to escape. Joseph King, a boy of about 10 or 11 years old, asked to join the crew. Bellamy obliged, taking him on as a ship's boy. Then he released the sloop, taking only some fine clothing before he and the crew set sail. They came upon a ship that was a step up from the Marianne. He asked his crew to vote on taking over the Sultana, equipped with 26 guns, and they all agreed again. Bellamy now commanded three ships. Their growing numbers emboldened them to take on even larger ships, like the Widda, an English merchant ship with four and a half tons of gold and silver on board. Bellamy's tactic of wild behavior worked yet again. Captain Lawrence Prince fired two rounds before surrendering. Once the pirates boarded, he found their behavior had been a ruse. Bellamy and his men treated him and his crew fairly. Bellamy, having realized that he'd just become exceedingly wealthy from the raid, offered the captain of the Sultana 20 pounds in gold and silver as a gesture of goodwill. 
with the approval of his crew, one last time, he suggested that they make one more trip. For Bellamy, it was time to go home. Mary would be waiting. And soon enough, he was almost home. One night, while off the coast of Cape Cod, Bellamy stood on the deck deciding what to do next. Lightning illuminated the cliffs. They had sailed into a nor'easter. Rains pummeled the widda, and the storm tossed the ship around in the high waves. The anchors were all that stood between them and the jagged rocks. But if they stayed, the waves would also tear the ship apart. So he asked his men to vote on cutting the anchors and to try to steer the ship to shore. He'd been fair and honest, always adhering to the rules that he'd written and adjusted to match his own kinder values and morals. They lived by the code, and if they were wrong, they would die by the code. The men believed in their captain, and so they cut the anchor ropes. If Mary still walked the cliffs, her wait had finally ended. The next day, only two survivors were found. Sam Bellamy was not among them. Scholars who study pirates are faced with a problem. Items aboard sunken vessels are difficult enough to identify, and even worse when they are documents written on paper. Perhaps this is why so much of what we know of pirate life almost reads like legend. When the news hit about Bellamy and the Widda, treasure hunters descended upon Cape Cod, just as Bellamy and Williams had done after the Spanish vessel met a similar fate years before. None of the fortune seekers were successful, though, until October 30th of 1985. Barry Clifford ignored everything else in his life, his job, his marriage, and his family. Over the years, he pored over records, talked with treasure hunters, and recovered scraps of iron he believed had once belonged to the Widda. In 1982, he went as far as the U.S. District Court to secure all rights to any treasure he might find. With his request granted, he anchored his boat in the area that he believed the Widda had anchored that night in 1771. After moving sand on the ocean floor, his team uncovered millions of dollars worth of treasure. They had a problem, though. They couldn't prove the ship was the Witta. Without proof, he had no claim to the treasure, at least until his crew uncovered the ship's bell. After archaeologists cleaned it, Clifford had his proof. The inscription on the bell read, The Witta Galley, 1716. With millions of dollars in treasure at stake, the state of Massachusetts sued for joint ownership. For three years, the case remained in litigation. In 1988, Clifford won his case, saved by his earlier grant handed to him from the U.S. District Court. His team continued to extract artifacts and treasure over the years, making a monumental discovery in 2006. They uncovered bones and a shoe. Forensic evidence suggests the skeleton belonged to a 10- or 11-year-old boy, most likely that of Joseph King. Last year, in 2021, Clifford's team recovered the remains of six more men. They tested the DNA taken from a leg bone against the DNA of a Bellamy family descendant. Unfortunately, that particular femur was not a match to the famous pirate. The site is still active, though, and there may be more to find among the wreckage. Until then, just as Mary did all those years ago, all we can do is wait. Pirates and mutiny go hand in hand, like an ocean-born chocolate and peanut butter. Everywhere you look, stories of the high seas and the criminals who sailed them never seem to be without a bit of, well, organizational restructuring. 
Which is why it should be no surprise that we have one more tale to tell. And if you stick around through this brief sponsor break, my crewmate Ali Steed will tell you all about it. He had what might be the worst midlife crisis in history, and he wasn't even 30. It was August 1717, and most of the pirate community in Nassau still mourned the loss of Sam Bellamy. When a strange boat arrived, mourning turned to curiosity. Usually, few civilians ventured to the island after all. The captain, a plump, soft-looking man, appeared on deck wearing a nice dressing gown. Steed Bonnet might have been unusual, but the pirates in Nassau hardly considered him a threat. Bonnet was an aristocrat, born into wealth, and had grown up in rather a charmed life. His family owned over 400 acres of sugarcane fields, 94 enslaved peoples, and three household servants. He had the very best education money could buy. While serving as a major in the local militia, a requirement rather than a preference, Bonnet courted Mary Allenby, the daughter of another plantation owner. The two married in 1709 and settled into a comfortable life together, in a house just south of Bridgetown Harbor. It seemed he led the perfect fairy tale life, but nothing good lasts forever. The couple's first child died, and although they had three more, the loss haunted Bonnet for the rest of his life. Around the same time, residents were worried about pirates. Stories of Teach, Hornigold, and Bellamy struck fear in everyone's hearts. Except for Bonnet, who was delighted with the tales. He began to see pirate life as a means of escaping the loss of his child and the discomfort he felt in his marriage. He bought a warship, telling authorities he planned to hunt pirates. He christened the ship the Revenge, though he had nothing to get revenge against, and hired a crew. One night in late spring of 1717, he bid farewell to his family and set sail for South Carolina. His wife and children would never see him again. Charleston's Harbor made it a popular destination, like a sandbox for pirates in training. Lots of easy targets. On August 26th, Bonnet raided his first ship there, though the bounty was barely worth the effort. Other raids followed with minimal successes. Feeling more confident, he sailed into Spanish territory, this proved to be a mistake, however. Experienced pirates knew to steer clear of more powerful ships and could tell the difference between a merchant ship and a man of war. Bonnet did not. He took on a warship and either with sheer luck or because the revenge was smaller and faster, they managed to escape with their lives. But the fighting cost him half his crew and he himself suffered a serious injury. The ship lumbered into Nassau, Wary at first, pirates soon granted Bonnet refuge, and Blackbeard spotted an opportunity. While Bonnet recovered from his injuries, Blackbeard repaired the sloop and added two additional cannons to make future battles a little more of a fair fight. Afterwards, Blackbeard put his most trusted crewman in charge. Quartermaster William Howard took control of the revenge, and Bonnet joined Teach on Queen Anne's revenge. In return for the swap, Bonnet would learn from Blackbeard, one of the most feared and experienced pirates operating in the Caribbean. They sailed together for a time, but it isn't clear why the two separated in early 1718. Now captaining the Revenge and with his original crew, Bonnet took to hunting ships near Honduras. They spotted a large ship four times the size of the Revenge, 
And despite the odds and his previous disasters, Bonnet decided to risk an attack. Bonnet shouted to the captain on the other ship that his crew would give no quarter. The plump captain and the smaller vessel did little to intimidate the larger ship's captain. The resulting battle lasted three hours before Bonnet ordered a retreat. Exhausted with Bonnet and his antics, the crew voted to return to Turniff in Central America to meet with Edward Teach. Their captain had clearly learned nothing while acting as his apprentice. When they arrived, Blackbeard listened to their grievances and ordered a vote. A distraught Bonnet could do nothing while his men chose to replace him with one of Teach's men. They even chose to evict him from his own ship, though Blackbeard allowed him to live aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge. He tried to cheer Bonnet, assuring him that he could spend his time aboard his ship where he would be free of all duties. Though once they reached North Carolina, Blackbeard left Bonnet and 25 of his men behind when he decided to take the pardon. Undeterred and hungry for revenge against Blackbeard, Bonnet set sail once more. His new stint as captain didn't last long, and he was captured on September 17th of 1718 and put on trial in South Carolina for piracy. Bonnet tried to leverage his status as a gentleman rather than a pirate and blamed everything on Blackbeard. He escaped briefly, but was recaptured after a storm forced him ashore at Sullivan Island. The trial came to a swift conclusion and Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate, hung on December 10th, 1718. Pirates was executive produced by Aaron Mankey and narrated by Aaron Mankey and Alexander Steed. Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto with research by Alexander Steed and Sam Alberti. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim and Mild and iHeartRadio, visit GrimAndMild.com.